have your Bible this morning, open to Hebrews chapter 10. And before we dive into Hebrews chapter 10 this morning, I want to just, I want to revisit the big picture just for a second of Hebrews. You know, we're, we're a good ways into the book. We're getting close now to the, the final leg of, of Hebrews and some, some super challenging stuff uh, coming up in the, in the next couple of weeks. It really just hits us right between the eyes. But for those of you who've been in this journey for a while with us, and you've been doing this in your life groups, you've been here in worship, you've been reading this on your own, you may have this question, why is Hebrews so redundant? You know, why is it so repetitive? I think when you're listening to the, to the book of Hebrews, you're listening to it being taught through a modern lens, you're thinking, I get this already. You know, for us, portions of it, though some are pretty deep, others seem a bit remedial. You know, again, through this modern lens, we're thinking, I've got that already. Uh, let's move on. Let's move on to something else. We get these ideas of sacrifice, atonement. We get the ideas of temple and high priest. We get what Christ has done for us. Why, Why is this so repetitive? Why don't you think about this for a moment through the lens of the people who heard it the first time? And remember, when you are studying scripture and when you're hearing scripture being taught, the most accurate understanding of that scripture, any scripture, is going to be how did the people for whom it was written first understand it? What was its intention for them? We're secondary to that. It's written for us. It's not written directly to us. So to the people who heard Hebrews the first time, and this book probably was penned only about 40 years or so after the time of Christ. Think about that for a moment. Only about 40 years after the time of Christ. Consider how different is this message than everything they'd been hearing for their whole lives. Everything they'd heard growing up, everything they'd seen, everything they'd experienced, everything that was normal to them. Now they're being told that all of that, while important, was a shadow of something better. You've been doing that, and this is what God gave you to do, and you've been obedient to it, you've been faithful to it, but at the core, were you satisfied by it? Were you really changed by it? Or is it possible that now over time, you've learned how to go through the motions? You learn how to play the part. You learn how to say the things you ought to say. You know the things in your mind. This part is not broken. You know what you need of God. That part's not broken, but maybe the want to is broken. The desire for is broken. And now you're just going through these systems and they're not hitting you where you really live. They're not hitting you in your heart. This message is different. And again, consider the context for a moment. This is something new, something 40 years old, now that's displacing something that's a couple thousand years old. This repudiates to them their history, their culture, their identity, all those things in the air. And on top of all of that, how new is all this, how challenging is all this intellectually, emotionally, the context of believing in Jesus then was not an easy one. I mean, they were being called to follow Christ and suffer for it. You know, this is a very different sort of invitation than we would give in a modern American church. You know, most of the invitations you've heard in your lifetime and that have been given in our lifetimes in churches, revival services, crusades, rallies, all those things were similar to this. Here are all the benefits you get from following Christ. We don't talk about sin very much because that's off-putting. We simply... We, we simply don't talk about suffering because it's not relevant to us because we don't suffer for this yet. It's all about benefits. Here are all the things you could get. Here's about the life you could be having. It's your best life we're offering you. Here's all the things that you're missing. Come to Christ. 
There's a very different sort of invitation being given to Christians in North Korea today, or Iraq today, or the Sudan today, or in many places around the globe today. The invitation to follow Christ there looks something like this. Listen, this is different than what you grew up believing. This is different than what you've experienced. This is different than your culture, your history. And if you follow this, it might cost you everything. But Christ is worth it. Because in Christ, you get the ultimate. You don't just get these temporal benefits. You get God. You get God. And he's the only way to the Father, the one that made you, the one that authored all of this creation, the one who one day will judge you, the one day that every single person will stand in front of. You won't have a relationship with that God, not just a study about his attributes, not just a historical lesson about his actions, You want to know that God and experience his love, his joy, his peace? This comes only through Christ, and so it's worth it. Whatever else you might lose in the process, gaining Christ is everything. You get the privilege of God. Periodically, I've shared with you prayers that are meaningful to me that are written, old prayers. This is a book that I've referenced before called The Valley of Vision. It's a collection of anonymous Puritan prayers. Um, Puritan theology has had a great impact on my life and, and, and preaching and teaching ministry. And this prayer by itself, I was telling Cecilia before the message, I could almost just read this prayer. And some of you are going to be saying, well, why don't you just do that? That sounds like a good idea. <laughs> I could almost just read this prayer and say, let this sink in today and then say amen and we go home. And because it's not my prayer, I'm not going to just pray it artificially. I'm going to read it, but I want to read it in a spirit of prayer. And I want you to hear it and I want you to think about it. Again, the title of this is Privileges. O Lord God, teach me to know that grace precedes, accompanies, and follows my salvation. That it sustains the redeemed soul. That not one link of its chain can ever break. From Calvary's cross, wave upon wave of grace reaches me, deals with my sin, Washes me clean, renews my heart, strengthens my will, draws out my affection, kindles a flame in my soul, rules throughout the inner man, consecrates my every thought, word, work, teaches me thy immeasurable love. How great are my privileges in Christ Jesus. Without him, I stand far off, a stranger, an outcast. In him, I draw near and I touch his kingly scepter. Without him, I dare not lift up my guilty eyes. In him, I gaze upon my Father, God and friend. Without him, I hide my lips in trembling shame. In him, I open my mouth in petition and praise. Without him, all is wrath and consuming fire. In him, all is love and the repose of my soul. Without him is gaping hell below me and eternal anguish. In him, its gates are barred to me by his precious blood. Without him, darkness spreads its horrors in front. In him, an eternity of glory is my boundless horizon. Without him, all within me is terror and dismay. In him, every accusation is charmed into joy and peace. Without him, all things external call for my condemnation. 
In him, they minister to my comfort and are to be enjoyed with thanksgiving. Praise be to thee for grace and for the unspeakable gift of Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we draw near to you, knowing that as we do, you draw near to us. That's what your word says. Father, teach us today. Expose us today. Challenge us today. Comfort us today. Lord, for someone, save us today. And for all of us who are in Christ, send us out today better than we came in. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As I was reviewing this text early this week and thinking about titles, and there used to be a time when my preaching ministry where titles were just so super important to me because I thought of titles like a hook or something. You know, you put it out there on the sign and somebody's going to drive by and see that compelling title. Oh, that sounds interesting. I'll drop in. And then I realized that never happens. And I realized I was spending a lot of time in futility coming up with clever titles. So now I don't pay much attention to that. So I hope you're never let down or disappointed. If you are, I don't care because I'm not really caring either about the title. However, when I revisited this this week, I thought, here's something that's more succinct and more accurate to this text. In a sense, it's not comprehensive. I mean, it's not everything, but in a sense, it does speak to this major point. What do Christians do? We've been talking a lot over the last several weeks about what Christ has done. What do Christians do? What do Christians do in light of what Christ has done? So there's a giant word that kicks off this text that kind of gives us a clue to that point. Therefore. Therefore. So what about it? What makes this important? And what do I do with it? Therefore, look at verse 19 of Hebrews chapter 10. Therefore, brothers, so you know who this is aimed at. A little note, note to self. This is to you if you're a Christian. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus, by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain that is through his flesh, and since we have a great high priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith and with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together, as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another. And all the more, as you see the day drawing near. So in a sense, this passage throws out some responses. We started at the beginning of Hebrews about learning this great salvation we have in Christ that should not be ignored. You can't turn your back from this. Don't turn away from this. You can't ignore this. This is so great. You must see this great salvation. So what's our response to that great salvation? First response is this. We draw near. Now, if we were in some sort of small group or Bible study, I would ask for some feedback here. But for time's sake, I can't. But I want you to think about this for a moment. When you hear someone say or sing like we just did, God wants you to draw near. You can draw near. I would imagine that for a lot of us, we interpret that sometimes in some sort of a vague, uh, abstract, ambiguous, emotional way. You know, I want to feel close. I don't feel very close to God. I feel far away from God. What do I need to do in order to feel close? We spend a whole lot of time trying to give biblical therapy to our uh, waxing and waning emotions. But that's not what this is about primarily. It's not about how you feel. It's about a choice that you can make, and it's about a promise that God has made to you already. See, this drawing near to God, again, is not a feeling. It's it's a reality. It's an actual thing. 
It's something that God has promised to do. We would say, in a sense, it's prophetic. Or, and here's your technical word for this morning, it's eschatological, it's future tense. It's a prophecy about what God is going to do. And in a sense, what God is promising he's going to do, he's already done. It's a realized, but not yet realized prophecy. What does that mean? Well, God is already drawing people near to him. But one day, every hindrance to us being close to the Father, physically close in absolute proximity to him, emotionally close, morally close, all those things are going to be gone. That's what heaven is about. Heaven is not about all the fun stuff you get to do there. It's not about all the freedom from all the things you hate to do here. It's ultimately about being with God. And so it's a promise, being realized now and ultimately realized then. And it's born out of the Old Testament, prophet Jeremiah. Prophet Jeremiah in chapter 30 of his letter writes this, verse 18, Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will restore the fortunes of the tents of Jacob, and I will have compassion on his dwellings. The city shall be rebuilt on its mound, and the palace shall stand where it used to be. Out of them shall come songs of thanksgiving and the voices of those who celebrate. I'll multiply them, and they shall not be few. I'll make them honored, and they shall not be small. Their children shall be as they were of old, and their congregation shall be established before me, and I will punish all who oppress them. Their prince shall be one of themselves. Their rulers shall come out of their midst. Getting the prophetic clues here? I will make him draw near, and he shall approach me. For who would dare of himself to approach me, declares the Lord? And you shall be my people, and I will be your God. There's coming a time where God's going to restore what was broken. He's going to rebuild what was torn down. And he's going to raise up one, an intercessor, a mediator, who is going to be in his presence, draw near to him, so that you and I can be this. We can be his people, and he can be our God. That's what it's all about. Everything that God is doing, everything that Hebrews has been talking about, everything that God is working in your life towards right now is towards that end, that you would be in every way God designed and in every way you deeply desire, whether you recognize that desire or not, takes place. That God would be your God and you would truly be his people. He wouldn't be an abstract idea. He wouldn't be a religion. He wouldn't be a set of rules. He wouldn't be this process that you go through or the system that you're a part of. He would be your God and you'd be his people. You would know him and love him and enjoy him. And so that's what Hebrews is talking about. God has given us astounding access to him. That's one of the stumbling blocks, by the way, for the first hearers of this book. Wait a minute. You're saying that a regular, a regular Joe can approach the holy God because that's never been the case before. Only the high priests have access to God. And really the sort of access that we desire deep in our hearts to really know the living God, he can only approach him once per year. And now you're saying, I can? I can have access to the Father? Yes, we can boldly approach the throne of grace. I think one of the regrets that we're going to have most, if that's the right word, you know, looking back one day when we stand before the Father is we could have had access to him all along. I mean, we could have been enjoying him and experiencing him. We, we could have been talking with him and hearing from him all along, but we spent so much more time reading people's junk on social media flipping through the channels, spinning our wheels, wasting our time. We could have had so much more of God all along. A absolutely. See, in Christ, we've got a living sacrifice that made this possible. He's the fulfillment of Jeremiah chapter 30. He absolves our sins, and he removes our fear of the holy presence of God. 
For the Hebrews, they were, they were frightened by, and they were rightly frightened by the presence of God because they've seen in their history what people who approach God wrongly get. What happens to them? They're, they're destroyed. But Jesus removes that fear. We go in with him. We go in in him. We go in covered by him. That's what it means to be Christ, to be in Christ. And he's the high priest. I won't revisit that point because we've covered it a great bit of these last several weeks, but he, in fact, is our high priest, always interceding for us, always there for us, praying for us, a living sacrifice that is always covering our sins once and for all. So we know this to be true. We draw near even as God is drawing us. Right now, you can say God is drawing you to himself. That's what he's doing in your life right now. The, the things that God is working out in your life, the things that he's bringing into your life, the things that he's allowing to filter through his sovereignty and his care over your life, all those things are designed by God to draw you to him. Why does God do that? Why does God care enough to draw you and me to him? And there's only one word, or maybe one word that connects with other words that are like it. I would say, ultimately, that blanket word is love. The only reason God would do that is because he loves us. How does he show his love towards us? And grace, and mercy, and kindness, and generosity. But all those are outpourings of his love. In a way, you and I can't fathom, because we know in our worst days, well, no, we know in our best days, we're not worth God. Yet God is still drawing us. God wants to pull you closer to him. And as Chuck alluded to as he was leading into our Lord's Supper, He's working to remove all of those obstacles, barriers that we put up, that we have created, including our sins, that keep us from his presence. He's drawing us to himself because in his presence, among other things, is fullness of joy. In his presence, we know what real love is. In his presence, we have peace that passes understanding. In his presence, we know the purposes for which we have made. We were made. In his presence, we know what our true value is. All these things. He's drawing us to himself because he is the center and source of every good thing. And he wants to give us himself. So as God is drawing us to himself, therefore we draw near. We draw near to the one who knows us, who's all powerful, who's all good, who's all holy. And Hebrews chapter 10 tells us how we do this. How do we draw near? I wouldn't exactly call these conditions as much as they are the circumstances by which we draw near. Because if I were to call them conditions, then I would say, you've got to do these things or you can't draw near. But actually, we are made able to draw near by the work of Christ. And Christ creates these conditions, makes them possible for us so that we do draw near. First condition is assurance. We draw near with assurance. It's interesting over the years, and maybe I should have been kind of scoring this and not just trying to keep up with it in my head because my memory's terrible, but I would say one of the most common questions you get over the years is, how can I know for sure that I'm saved? I struggle with certainty. I struggle with assurance. Um, not much time goes by that I don't have some conversation with someone about assurance. Now, a lot of times those, those reasons are similar. Uh, someone has really just falling away from God. I mean, they know they're doing things that absolutely don't match what it means to be a Christian. They know they're doing things that are in absolute conflict with their own conscience, much less with the work of the Holy Spirit in them, which they're not sure of anymore. And so that's self-inflicted. A lot of our struggle with assurance is self-inflicted. 
But the challenge I want to make to you today in this particular text, this context, is the source of spiritual confidence. What Hebrews 10 calls assurance, drawing near with assurance. The source of that confidence is not your performance. I know that's a risky thing to say. I was thinking as Chuck was speaking about performance, how much of our life is based on performance. That challenging people's performance is kind of the bread and butter of preaching ministry because we're always challenging you to do more, do better, or stop doing stupid things or bad things, right? I mean, basically, we've got jobs we need you to do. We've got ministries that need to be filled. We've got needs that need to be met. And by the way, you're doing a lot of stupid things this week. Stop doing those things. Start doing these things and all's going to be better. And we would not exactly say it that way, but it's all performance. You've got to get better than you are because what you are ain't good enough. And some of us enjoy that, honestly. Some people enjoy kind of being beat up mentally, spiritually. They feel like, oh, man, I really met with God. I got hammered today. You know, man, you're all over my toes. That felt good. Well, listen, I'm not trying to feed your need for some sort of spiritual masochism here. I mean, the truth is this. Not one of us on our very best of best days has what it takes to stand in the presence of the Almighty and the Most Holy God. We don't. Our assurance, and the assurance this passage is talking about, the source of our spiritual confidence is not performance. It's grace. It's grace. How can any of us approach the throne of God? Because God made it possible through Christ, and Christ gives us grace. We draw near with assurance. Assurance is my confidence that despite myself, God has deemed me worthy because of Christ. While I was still a sinner, Christ loved me, and he gave himself for me. My assurance is Christ. It's all Christ. But we also have to draw near with integrity. Now, this might fall into that category of, of condition. We draw near with integrity. As you heard in communion, there are certain things that keep you from approaching. Now, how am I going to approach God full of sin that I don't want to let go of? How can I honestly, I mean, how does this even work for you or for me? How does this work? to approach the throne of grace. It's about my sin. That's why Jesus died. It's sin that separates me from God. That's the hindrance. That's the barrier. He made a way through his sacrifice for my sin. The bloody sacrifice reminds me of the seriousness of sin. I mean, come on, this only makes sense. How do I think I just keep approaching God without concern for sin? So we've got to approach him with integrity. And so I guess the challenge for all of us is what is keeping you from God right now? And here's the thing. It's not just theoretically keeping you from God. It's practically keeping you from God. Because we don't entertain well our sin and spiritual energy and intensity towards God. Those things don't coexist. I mean, we're not going to be in this state where, you know, I know I'm really sinning badly right now, but I'm really loving Jesus a lot too, and I really want to be in his presence. Those things don't fit together. We're one or the other. We're pursuing something or someone. We're in love with Christ. We're in love with other stuff. We're trying to please God. We're not really caring too much about pleasing God. And so we approach him with integrity. What's keeping me from God? And we also draw near with with righteousness. So isn't that what you just said, righteousness? No, no. This goes back to what I said before what I just said. What righteousness affords you the right to approach God? Self-righteousness? Come on. Again, back to that idea of performance. You think God's going to give you a a better week this week because you had a better week last week? You, You really think that the equation God's working in your life 
Every, every year, every month, every week, every day, every hour is let's see how you do and I'll see what you get. He doesn't treat us as our sins deserve. I'm glad of that. That's not a license. When I say that's a dangerous thing to say, I understand why. Because you're saying, oh man, I get to do whatever I want. That's what you're saying. No, no, no. Please, for my sake, your sake, and Christ's sake, go read Romans chapter 6. How can you, who are dead to sin, live any longer in that? You can't. But what I am saying is this. Let's, let's give up this notion that causes us so much stress and anxiety and does a grand disservice to the grace of God that says, I can approach God because I've been a lot more like God this week. It's his righteousness. So we draw near. I'm not going to get to everything I want to if I take this long. So you guys got to understand faster, okay? All right. Which means, that's not an insult as much as it sounds. I was sharing this with somebody the other day. It would help me out a lot. If, like, if you guys would just like, give me a head nod every now and then, then I would, you'd be saying to me, hey, I got it. You can move on. But when you sit there with sort of like this blank face, and think, they don't get it, so I'm going to say this again in a different way. <laughs> I got a lot of ways of saying the same things. <laughs> Stick with me. Number two, what do, what do Christians do? Christians hold fast. They hold fast. Again, we've, man, we're seeing more stories of deconversion than uh, we know what to do with. And we're seeing people who are renouncing their faith, walking away from it, saying they never believed this, or they once did, but now they don't, etc. We see this all. True Christians hold fast. They don't let go of it. They hold fast to what they believe. How do they hold fast to what they believe? Because God's word and God's spirit have taught us what we believe. Now, I don't have time to elaborate as much as I'd like to in every point, but make a note to yourself on this. You notice I didn't say you hold fast to it because your mama taught you what to believe. Because your granddad believed. Because your church believes. Because your pastor said this is what you ought to believe. You'll hold fast to what you believe. When you yourself have encountered it in the word of God, and the Spirit of God, which lives in you, has taught you, then you'll hold fast. Until then, it's all borrowed. And borrowed things are not quite the treasure to me of things that are hard-earned, hard-won, hard-bought. We hold tightly to what we believe. We hold tightly to hope. We don't give up our hope. And when I say hope, you understand the meaning here. So put an asterisk or a circle so you make sure you get the definition correct. When we say we hold fast to our hope, that's our confident assurance that what God said is what's going to happen. So you and I hold fast to this hope. It's an eschatological hope, a future tense hope. It's a Lord's Supper hope. We proclaim his death till he comes. That's our hope. Every time we take the Lord's Supper, we're renewing our hope. We're saying, you know what? This isn't about... This isn't just about what Jesus did. It's not just history. It's future. He's coming again. And that's my hope. I had the weirdest dream the other night that I was on a mission trip somewhere, and the people we were doing missions with were being persecuted. I mean, physically persecuted. People were coming into the village and physically attacking them. And I can remember the day, and it's just this picture in my mind, we're all outside, and here they come. And I can remember vividly in my dream, here is an actual challenge that for almost all of us is theoretical at best, are you going to stand here or are you going to run? Are you going to acknowledge Christ and suffer for it? I mean, literally, it was so vivid in my dreams. They're coming through and they're cutting off heads. What are you going to do in that moment? We hold tight to this hope because we know it's true. And not only is it true, it gives our lives meaning and purpose. If Christ is the king and the king is coming back and I am a representative of the king, I am his steward, I am his ambassador. 
Christ making his appeal through me, through you, is what the Bible says is the role of Christians. What do I do with that? That's what I'm, what I'm here for. That's my, that's my purpose. And ultimately, we hold tightly to God himself because he's faithful and he's true. Why do you hold tight to God? Because he's God. When all is said and done, what's left? Us before God. So I think of it like this. You know, when it comes to assurance, God has made a way, so I'm going to take it. And I think about holding fast. God is holding me. I'm not going to let go of him. Here's a third thing that this passage says that Christians do. Christians provoke each other. And you say, yeah, I know that. I know that's right. But when I say provoke, I'm taking the literal meaning of that word. Some of your translations will say, stir up. Some will say, stimulate. The idea is to, to rouse, to motivate, to push, to cause. I could soapbox on this one for a little bit. But I want to ask, is that happening in your life? You got anybody in your life that's pushing you, stirring you, rousing you? Provoking you in a positive sense towards God, towards godliness, towards a life that pleases Him, towards a life that honors Him, towards finding your purpose in Him? Who's pushing you? Is that happening in your life group? Because if it's not, your life group is failing. If all you're doing is talking about stuff and no one's pushing you to live that stuff, your life group's failing. Are you in a D group? Are the people in your D group stirring you, rousing you, motivating you, pushing you towards goodness and godliness, towards God and his purposes? This is what we're here for. This is one of the many reasons why we need each other. This is how God made us, by the way. Who you got in your corner, in your life, in your faith, doing that for you? Because if you don't, here's the clear implication, then you're probably not you're probably not being stirred up towards love and good works. With nobody in your life rousing you, pushing you, stimulating you, provoking you, stirring you up towards good and God, you know what you're actually being pushed towards? No, it's not pushed, pulled, pulled. You're being drawn in to you. So you're being pulled towards selfishness, self-centeredness, what I want, what I like, what I think, what I want to do. Not your business, all mine. That's the difference. We're called to provoke each other. And there's some reasons here. In the wider context of all of the book of Hebrews, where you've got a body of believers who are embracing Christ and now they're all being persecuted for it, perseverance doesn't happen alone. It doesn't. We're all called to persevere. We're all called, if you're Christian, to keep on believing. We're all called to hold on, to hang on, to finish well, not just to start, not just to start the race, but to finish, to keep the faith, all of us. That doesn't happen by yourself. There's a reason why God made the church. This is not the only, but it's A. We persevere together. We lock arms together as one man for the sake of the gospel. We build each other up. We lift up our brothers when they fall. We challenge one another. We stir one another up. Perseverance doesn't happen by itself. And the challenges to perseverance are going greater and greater and greater. And so listen, those people who are straying farther and farther away from face-to-face -face relationships with other believers, 
Those people were becoming increasingly disconnected in any meaningful way from real flesh and blood people are putting themselves at greater and greater risk of falling away altogether. Perseverance. And also, again, what does this passage say we stir one another up to? It says we stir one another up to love and good works. That can't happen alone. Who are you loving? Love is not a love is not a concept. It's not a warm feeling in your heart. It's an expression. It's an action. Who do you love if you got nobody around you? If you're disconnected from everybody, who are you doing good works for? You say, well, you all write some checks here and there. Man, that's good. If you've got some ministries that you support and everything you do, that's good. But it doesn't take the place of love and good works face to face. You've got to do that. You see, you and I are part of a family. You're, you're part of a body. You're a member of the church. And you need to be able to say to other members of this church, I need you. I need you in my life. I need what you bring. And you need me. That's part of what the church is. Which brings up the next point. Stick with me. As Christians, we assemble. We assemble. Every time you see church referenced in the New Testament, the word that we have translated church, you've heard the word probably if you've been in church much, ecclesia. Ecclesia, we translate it church. It simply means the assembly. Now, it doesn't just mean an assembly, because there are a lot of reasons people assemble. People assemble to riot. People assemble to cheer. Um, you know, people assemble for political reasons, social reasons. This is an assembly of something. It's the people of God coming together. Why do we assemble? Because that's what the church is. Because the church, biblically, is a people who gather in a place. Now listen, I, I, I don't have time to develop this point nearly as much or in detail as I would like. We are in... We are in an ecclesial, that means doctrine of the church. The modern church is in ecclesial crisis. It is. Because I'm afraid that far too high of a percentage, dare I say the majority of church members, fundamentally don't understand anymore what the church is and what the church ought to be. And we've been told some things that I think were well-meaning, well-intentioned, just poorly executed, poorly conveyed, and with consequences that maybe we didn't imagine. We've been told things like this. The church is not a place, it's a people. We've told us it's not a program, it's, it's a people. And those things, to the degree to which they are true, they're true. But church is never less than a gathering of people. It's never less than an assembly. It's the people of God coming together. Now, in a sense, we don't require a building to do that. If, God forbid, tornadoes should rip this facility down to its foundations, we would still gather as a people. We might gather on a parking lot with folding chairs. We might gather in the grass with blankets, but we would gather. And we don't need a building to do that. But we do, in order to be a church, need to gather. And again, that's just what a church is. And what's lost in this ecclesial crisis where people don't really understand what church is anymore, and they think they can be a part of it without being a part of it? What is being lost? Well, there's so much. And again, time prohibits me from saying too much. When you're not assembling with the church anymore, and maybe it's just something you watch online, you know, 
Sometimes I have to fight the pride of how people text me, oh, you're, you're one of my favorites. I watch you, and they list four other people on Sunday mornings, and it's like, awesome. I'm, I'm right up there with Charles Stanley and your pastor and some Pentecostal guy who's a false teacher. Thanks. <laughs> but in all of those, you need to be connected with somebody somewhere. Because, see, when you don't assemble, one of the things that's going to naturally begin to happen is you stop thinking about other people. And I say this with all due respect because I don't want all the people that are watching online right now just to turn off. Oh, if you don't want me to watch, I'll turn off. But I do want you to say, if you can be physically present, you need to be. Because what's going to suddenly begin to happen to you when you're disconnected from the church is you stop thinking about all those other people. You're only thinking about yourself. And church isn't about how much information you can download. Frankly, if that's all that there was, I would just reference you, refer you to better people than me who are better teachers than me who give better content than me. But it's not primarily about information download. It's not primarily about your own personal benefit. What about other people? Who in this room came in this place today who needed a word of encouragement, who needed somebody to pray for them, who needs maybe a short conversation in this room that's maybe 30 or 40 seconds long that will birth a dinner together or a lunch together or visit together later on this week because the needs are deep. Who's hurting? Who's lost something significant this week and needs to share that hurt? Who's celebrating something and needs to share that joy? Who's struggling in a way and thinking of walking away from it all and needs someone to encourage them? Who's a stranger and needs a friend? All these things don't happen when we're just doing this by ourselves. And you know, not only do I stop thinking about other people, but other people stop thinking about me. When I'm not here. So who's encouraging you? Who's helping you? Who's stirring you up? Who's motivating you? Who's asking? Who's holding you accountable? Also, over time, you start to forget that you actually do have a role in the family. You do have a ministry in the body. You, you do have a place that only you can fill. That's biblical. Just because you haven't found it, because you haven't done it, doesn't mean you don't have it or that you shouldn't. Those things don't happen in isolation. And what's gained when we do gather? Well, the flip side of those things. One, we're reminded of ourselves. Go to a family reunion and you take that big family picture, you're reminded of who you are. Who are your, who are your people? Who's your tribe? This is a reminder of ourselves. Who we are, who God has saved, as different as we are, we're the same in Christ. He, Ephesians 3.10 says that the church makes visible the wisdom of God. It's not just a reminder to ourselves, it's a reminder to our community. Look at that. That's what, that's what God does for people. That's real unity, real community. And ultimately, gathering together is more than just about ourselves. It's about the unique way in which we might experience God together. The ways that God is present corporately that's different than just you alone with God. You on the golf course. You sitting on the beach. You on your couch. It's God with us together. In a helpful little book called Corporate Worship, Matt Merker says this. He says, a strong theology of the assembly reminds us that God delights to pour out His presence among His people. There's a simple reason why meeting with God's people brings us such joy. And then he quotes a Puritan pastor. Back to the Puritans. 
David Clarkson. He says, God blesses his gathered people with his spirit. The Lord engages himself to let forth, as it were, a stream of his comfortable, quickening presence to every particular person that fears him. But when many of these particulars join together to worship God, then these several streams are united and meet in one, so that the presence of God, which enjoyed in private is but a stream, in public becomes a river, a river that makes glad the city of God. There's something unique about God's presence among his people gathered that cannot be, cannot be found by yourself. Now listen, I know there are always going to be reasons not to gather. Always are. Here's your list. I'm too tired. I'm too busy. It's my only day off. I have to work. People aren't friendly there. People are too friendly there. You know, people there are hypocrites. People there are judgmental. The songs are too loud. The songs are too old. Songs are too new. They're too fast. They're too slow. These are all things we've heard, by the way. The preacher goes too long. (laughs) The preacher goes too long. He's too shallow. He's too deep. He's not funny. He tries too hard to be funny. He's too loud. He's too soft. All these things. It's boring. I don't get anything out of it. It's over my head. I've heard it all before. It's too hot in there. It's too cold in there. People don't wear masks in there. People are wearing masks in there. (laughs) Now, here's the bottom line. We all do what we want to do. We all do what we want to do. Is that not true? We do what we value the most. We do what we value the most. Listen, church is designed by God to be a tiny outpost of heaven. That's what it is. It's a tiny outpost of heaven where God is glorified, where he rules, where people learn to love one another as brothers in Christ, and we live as his ambassadors. we got to live like that. And here's my final word. I know the hour is late. We do all these things with urgency. Urgency. Listen, this is maybe the most obvious point in the whole passage. Verse 25. And all the more as you see the day drawing near. All the more. Why do we approach his throne with boldness? Because you need the presence of God right now more than ever. You need it more than ever. Because there's so much that comes against us every single day that comes against you. So many things that will conflict with the love of God, the purposes of God, the goodness of God. You need him in your life. You need his presence more than ever. Why do we approach him with with integrity, with moral uprightness? Because we need maturity and personal holiness more than ever. A quick study of the church and its practices will show you we don't look like the church did 100 years ago when it comes to morals and purity. We slipped and become conformed so much to this world, we don't even recognize it. We wonder why we feel so far from God. Because God is saying, purify your hands, you sinners. Purify your hearts, you double-minded. We need that more than ever. I also say because we need perseverance more than ever. I'm not saying this is the hardest time it's ever been to be a Christian in America, but it's certainly harder than it's been in your lifetime, my lifetime. And we're certainly seeing a great falling away. We're certainly seeing rates of attrition like we've never seen. We need perseverance more than ever. We need people saying, no, we're going to stand fast. Why? Because opposition is greater than ever. I mean, we've seen a tide, a moral, social, cultural tide that we did not anticipate. And when I say we, I'm talking about people who are theologians and philosophers and students and scholars of the church. 
The kind of things that we were studying and talking about and kicking around as pastors 10, 15 years ago was this. We're seeing this cultural revolution coming. And you know what? It's ultimately going to be for our good because it's just going to wash away all the cultural facades, all that fakeness and superficiality and all that cultural Christianity. And we're going to go backwards. We're going to go back to the way it was at the time of Christ. And we're going to be able to lay out the pure gospel to a people who have nothing else. But no, that's not what we found happened. We didn't go backwards. In fact, we moved into a future that's entirely post-Christian. And now we don't live in a culture that's neutral towards the gospel or indifferent towards the gospel, simply because they don't know the gospel. Now we live in a culture that is adamantly antagonistic towards the gospel. And now, as Stephen McAlpin rightly writes in his book about being the bad guys, how to be the bad guys, when you want to be the good guys, you're on the wrong side of things. If you don't have a church that's going to help you stand fast to what you believe and what honors God and do this together, you're not going to. We need encouragement more than ever. And we need each other more than ever. All the more as you see the day approaching. We're not getting farther away. I'm not a prophet. Listen, this is simple stuff to me. We're not getting farther away from the return of Christ. We're getting closer. And as we get closer, I don't have to make predictions. I don't have to try to read the signs. I can simply say with confidence this, as we get closer, we need all this the more. We need all this the more. You need to be in worship. You need to be in a life group. You need to be face-to-face with some people in discipleship. You need to be nose-to-nose with some people that you love and that love you. And we need to do this now. I'm going to ask you if you'll bow with me and pray this morning. Father, thank you for the access that you've granted us to Christ. Thank you for holding us in the firm grip of Christ. Thank you for the challenge to never let go, to never turn back, to hold fast to the end. Thank you for your church, which has many blessings, many challenges, many imperfections because of us, not you. So many benefits, so essential to our health, to our perseverance, to our finishing well, to our witness in the world. And thank you for each other. Thank you for the people in this room. Thank you for the people who make up our spiritual family. Thank you for our church. May we not forsake you. May we love one another. And with the time that we have left, more critical every single day, may we stir one another up towards love and good works. Lord, that we might finish well, that we might give a witness to the nations that doesn't waver, and that you might be glorified. This is our prayer today in the name of Jesus. Amen.